Welcome to episode 81 of the AEM Resident and Student Podcast Series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. RSA is an accessible, collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Kirsty Bellardi, medical student at Western University of Health Sciences, and Miriam Hockley, intern at Valley Children's Hospital, talked to Dr. Andy Walker, an accomplished emergency physician and fellow of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine, about surprise billing and care affordability. For everyone listening, welcome to one of the AAEM RSA podcasts. Specifically, uh, we're doing this podcast as part of the Advocacy Committee. Uh, my name is Kirsty Bellardi, and I'm here with uh, Dr. Andy Walker and Dr. Miriam Hockley. Uh, I hope I said everyone's name right. Uh, I'm going to start by introducing myself, and then um, I'll invite Miriam to introduce herself. So like I said, my name is Kirsty Bellardi. I'm actually a third-year osteopathic medical student, as well as the AAEM RSA Vice Chair for the Advocacy Committee. And just a quick note on what interests me on the topic of surprise billing is that after living in multiple health systems, uh, I lived abroad for a while, I became really interested in care affordability, especially um, in high income countries. So now living in uh, the United States again, I've learned a lot and would like to look at it through different lenses. All right, Miriam? Thanks, Kirsty. Yeah, I'm Miriam Hockley. I'm an intern here at Valley Children's Hospital up in Fresno, California. Um, I'm a pediatric intern right now, um, and I'm. But my goal is a pediatric EM fellowship. Um, so I'm still very interested in the emergency medicine field. And and what interests me about surprise billing the most is, actually, as an intern, I've learned a lot about the costs of tests and very indirectly kind of learning about the conscientious ordering as physicians and knowing what kind of costs we're incurring to our patients potentially. Um, and that applies for me right now on the wards. But when it comes to the emergency department, we know that EMTALA means that we have to see anybody that comes through our doors. But we also know that bills will come to our patients in one form or another. And while we talk about surprise billing and how you know, that's very unfair billing to our patients. We still have to think about what are the costs of the tests that we're ordering. When it comes to an emergency, a CT may or may not be negotiable if it's a true emergency, but things as simple as CMPs versus BMPs, I've learned that there is a vast difference in how much they cost. And so my main interest right now is talking about, you know, the fact that we don't learn these things when we're medical students, even as residents. Um, and so starting to create a conversation about knowing how much tests cost and knowing how much we're billing our patients, I think is really important to me too. Well said. Okay. And then um, before I introduce Dr. Walker, our guest, I just want to preface the topic by saying that even though we started talking about this with Dr. Walker, I would say over a year ago when we were writing the statement on surprise billing, uh, by the way, if you want to read that, that's out in Common Sense. It came out earlier this year. The timing of this podcast is very unique, I would say. Um, for those of you who don't know, um, a recently passed legislation, also known as the No Surprise Act, No Surprises Act, I should say, uh, which was added to the spending bill by Congress as part of the COVID relief legislation is a monumental achievement in the battle against surprise billing, but it also has some things that, some positives and some negatives that we're gonna talk about today. I just want everyone to know that this legislation was passed last December in 2020, and now you can find it starting on page 1,741 on uh, a section of 103, and it starts with you know the determination of out-of-network rates to be paid by health plans and independent dispute resolution processes, which we're gonna kind of pick apart during this podcast. The new law and how it directly impacts this issue at hand will no doubt come up. Okay, so uh, Miriam, if you wanna introduce Dr. Walker, that'd be great. Sure, happy to. So Dr. Walker uh, was AOA at the University of Tennessee College of Medicine in Memphis, and then trained at the University of Florida's Shans Jacksonville Emergency Medicine Residency. Among his many positions and accolades, he served as an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Vanderbilt University, 
where he twice won the Corey Slovis Award for Excellence in Bedside Teaching, as a partner in a democratic emergency medicine group, as editor of Common Sense on, and on the AAEM Board of Directors, as well as chairman of AAEM's Government and National Affairs Committee, president of TNAAEM, AAEM's Tennessee chapter, and just last year as chairman of AAEM's COVID-19 Support Task Force. AAEM has, has presented him with both the David K. Wagner Award and the James Keeney Leadership Award. He currently serves on the AAEM Physician Group Board of Directors and as its treasurer. Until being laid off 10 months ago due to the coronavirus epidemic, he had been semi-retired and working half-time practicing locum tenens emergency medicine since 2014. Very nice. There's a lot of letters. <laughs> uh, okay. Hi, Dr. Walker. Hi, how are you doing? Well, and yourself? I'm good. Good. So um, now that we finally get to talk to you, uh, I thought we would start by just asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and especially what makes you so invested in this issue. Well, uh, I think you've done a pretty good job of describing my <laughs> career path. Um, so I'll just tell you how I got interested in balanced billing uh, and surprise bills. And uh, whether you realize it or not, even if you're in an employed position in an academic medical center, all emergency physicians basically earn their livings on commercially insured patients. Mm -hmm. Medicare patients, we about break even on. Um, Medicaid patients don't even pay enough to keep the doors of the ER open 24-7. So the money that keeps us functioning that allows us as emergency physicians to earn a living and pay our bills comes from that minority of commercially insured patients. And in most emergency departments, that's around 20 or 25% of patients. So because of the way the federal government reimburses us for Medicare and Medicaid patients, uh, we and hospitals uh, shift the cost of a 24 seven emergency department onto the minority of patients who have commercial insurance. Mm -hmm. uh, and we charge them usually three or 400% of Medicare because that's what it takes to keep operating. Mm -hmm. For years now, the insurance industry has been trying to cap what we can bill them when we stay out of their networks. And uh, I'll talk about uh, why we might choose to stay out of network as opposed to being in network in just a minute. Yeah, I think that is well said and well described. Um, while we're talking about some of these definitions and giving some context, I think you would be well poised to kind of define surprise billing and add, if possible, maybe you can talk about the current state of the issue because we introduced it, but I think you've also done some other work with it. So if you want to. Sure. Uh, if, if I'm the patient and I'm mm -hmm. a fairly sophisticated medical consumer, uh, I may check to see which hospitals in my area are in my insurance network. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if I fall and twist my ankle or I start having chest pain or, you know, flank pain and vomiting, and I think I've got a kidney stone, I'm going to go to a hospital that's in my insurance network mm -hmm. because that lowers my out-of-pocket costs. That's how insurers induce me to go to an in-network hospital mm -hmm. because they have negotiated an agreement with that hospital uh, so that the hospital gives the insurer discounts, rather steep discounts usually, on what the hospital charges for care. Mm -hmm. What I may not realize as a patient is that the emergency physician I see, and for that matter, any other doctor I see while I'm in the hospital, may not be in network even though the hospital is. So later on, when I get a bill for uh, medical care from that emergency physician, it's going to be higher than I expected because he's out of network, which increases my out-of-pocket cost as a patient. That's a surprise bill. Mm -hmm. And the way the insurance industry has portrayed this is uh, they want to cap what out-of-network doctors can bill the insurer, but they have framed the issue as patient protection. Uh, they want to protect patients from surprise bills. Well, in reality, the insurance industry couldn't care less about what the patient gets billed. Uh, mm -hmm. They actually encourage 
to some degree doctors to stay out of network because it shifts more cost onto the patient. And surprise billing to the patient would be easy to fix. All you have to do is pass a bill that says an out of network patient cannot be billed more out of pocket for out of network care than they can in network care in the event of an emergency. And no emergency physician in the country and no emergency medicine specialist organization opposes that principle. I mean, we're all for protecting patients. As y'all probably already know, even at your stage of practice, very few emergency department patients pay anything out of pocket anyway mm -hmm. uh, because of the charity burden we carry. Mm -hmm. So we have no vested interest in trying to price gouge patients. The problem with the insurance industry's approach to fixing the surprise bill problem is that they want to cap what we can bill them, the insurer, and not just protect the patient. And if what we as out-of-network physicians and bill insurers is capped, then insurance companies have no incentive at all to offer us fair terms to get us into their networks. Mm -hmm. Because if what we can bill out-of-network is capped, it doesn't matter to the insurer if we're in or out of network. I mean, networks yeah. don't matter anymore if what we can build them is capped. Yeah. If it's capped too low. So that's what's critical here uh, because we depend, and the nation's medical safety net depends on us being able to bill commercially insured patients. If the insurance industry gets that capped, the whole medical safety net unravels. Hospitals will close, emergency physician groups go out of business, and like I said, the, the medical safety net unravels, especially uh, in rural areas where hospitals don't have a lot of leverage to bargain with insurers. Mm -hmm. Now, if the hospital's part of a network of hospitals that dominates the region, they have bargaining leverage with insurers. But if you're a lone, democratic, physician-owned emergency medicine group, you know, that just covers one hospital, you've got no leverage at all. Uh, our only bargaining leverage with insurers is the threat of being able to stay out of network and bill them at a higher rate than the in-network rate. Mm -hmm. The out-of-network rate is capped too low. That leverage disappears, and insurers have even more power to just give us unfair contracts and say, take it or leave it. I hear you. And um, some of the things that you were saying really resonated with me. I personally think it's important to look at it from multiple perspectives, because that's one of the challenges that I know other medical students have spoken to have kind of shied away from the topic. Like, are you looking as a physician or as a patient or as a payer, like the, as an insurer? So there's so many different interests at play and so many perspectives that it's really important to see. And one other thing, just to add context to it, I mean, we've all seen some of the news reports that have come out, like person A goes to the emergency room, gets, I don't know, a cast for their broken arm, comes out thinking they're done paying, and then a month later they get a huge bill. And a lot of times the physician doesn't know what the point of care that's going to happen. So that's kind of something really something really prevalent that we've seen. Uh, and I think, Miriam, did you have something to add? Yeah, I, something that I thought of, Dr. Walker, as you were talking about this is, you know, as you gave the example of, let's say somebody does their research, they know exactly which hospital is in the network, they go to that hospital in the event of an emergency, but what they don't realize is that their doctor is going to be probably out of network. I wondered if from your standpoint, if we put ourselves in the patient's shoes, is there any way a patient could potentially protect themselves against balance billing in the climate that we are currently in, as things currently stand, could they protect themselves potentially? Could they do a little bit more research? Or is this information about which doctors are going to be in network available to them that they could find somewhere? They could potentially find it, but they would have to be an unusually sophisticated consumer of medical care and spend a lot of time doing it. I think it's completely unfair for us to expect a patient to be able to do that. Of course, yeah. Um, but, you know, as was mentioned earlier, the No Surprises Act became law in December, and patients are now protected from surprise bills. Okay. I'm just saying if the insurance industry's goal had been to protect patients alone, we could have done this year, literally years ago. Sure. But that their goal was to protect their profit margins 
at the expense of emergency physicians, and that's why there's been a fight. Uh, I mean, the American Academy of Emergency Medicine has been fighting over this quite literally for years at both state and federal levels. Yeah, it's been a long time coming for our patients, that's for sure. Yeah, and uh, so like I said, patients are now protected. They no longer have to worry about it. The situation, well, the battle between insurers and emergency physicians and other providers goes on. And uh, it's partially resolved by this new bill, but uh, the devil is always in the details. And as Congress usually does nowadays, they passed a fairly vague bill that instructs the Department of Health and Human Services to write more specific rules about how the, uh, the battle between insurers and providers is going to be settled. So now the Academy and uh, the AMA and other organizations are going to be lobbying HHS to make those rules fair. So the uh, conflict goes on. <laughs> That's great. Okay. Well, so and then another question I had for you, Dr. Walker, is is and maybe we've surpassed this discussion, given that we've talked about the No Surprises Act already, but I, I did read an article that had mentioned uh, a Tennessee uh, senator whom you had uh, commented on uh, legislation that he was pushing out at the time, Lamar Alexander. And I read a little bit about how his compromise to this situation was not exactly ideal. Could you expand upon that situation a little bit and how what he proposed was not a perfect solution? Yeah, for years, this battle was being fought. And in fact, when I say for years, in this case, I mean, probably a decade or more. Uh, This battle between hospitals, physicians and insurers was being fought at the state level, where the vast majority of insurance regulation takes place. Uh, And about 18 states, I believe, had passed uh, some kind of regulation about balanced billing and surprise bills before December 2020, when the federal legislation passed. And all those state laws remain on the books. And the federal law unusually says that uh, states can continue to enforce their current laws, even though there's a federal law on the topic now. But anyway, so this battle had been fought at the state level. A couple of years ago, Senator Alexander had decided he was going to retire and not run for re-election. He's been in the Senate for a long time. He's elderly now. Uh, But he wanted to fix this problem before he retired. And the original proposal he came out with was read like it had been written by the insurance industry. It basically crushed doctors, capped what we could bill insurers, and did not stop with just protecting patients, which, as I said, would have been easy and simple. Mm -hmm. So we talked to his staff uh, and a lot of other senators and uh, representatives about this. And when I say we, I mean the academy. For a couple of years and tried to explain how emergency medicine is funded in this country, how we depend on commercially insured patients and how we depend on our ability to stay out of network in order to bargain with insurers and get them to offer us fair terms to be in network. Mm-hmm. With most representatives and senators, we made a lot of progress and we explained to them the economic realities of our specialty. They grasped it. They came around to our point of view. Senator Alexander never did. And I'm not really sure why he's a, he's a good man. Uh, I've known him for a long time. He's a sincere, well-motivated public servant who I think has a career in and out of government that he can be very proud of. He just would not budge on this issue. And I don't know if it's his staff who are misinforming him. I I just don't know. I I was very surprised at how recalcitrant he was about this. But in any case, every so-called compromise he came up with still gave the insurance industry everything it wanted. So as you know from reading some of my editorials in Tennessee papers, we started trying to put pressure on him locally in his home state. Mm -hmm. And uh, between that and uh, convincing all the other representatives and senators that his approach was misguided, I think we we successfully shot that down. Okay, that's great. Yeah, I was just reading commentary on that issue and I was like, oh, how very interesting. But I'm glad to hear that. Shifting gears just a little bit, uh, Kirsty and I were both discussing, you know, the difficulties within the field of emergency medicine given COVID and how hard it is for a new grad to find a job. Um, in your opinion, you know, now with the legislative climate we've got since December, uh, do you feel that there's a way that COVID has impacted the issue of surprise billing and the shrinking job market that emergency medicine physicians are currently finding? And, and how have those two interplayed? We're just curious about that issue. I think they're really separate issues. As far as I can tell, they haven't interplayed much. 
with with the coronavirus epidemic, it has made emergency physicians as well as nurses and a lot of other healthcare workers much more sympathetic figures, and mm -hmm. it made politicians uh, much more hesitant to attack us as you know evil rich doctors who want to price yeah. gouge patients. <laughs> We're literally risking our lives to take care of those patients. Yeah. So having this issue resolved during the coronavirus epidemic actually came in a little bit handy for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. But as far as the other issue goes, the ability to get a job, I don't think that problem's going away anytime soon. I was laid off. You know, I've been doing locum tenens work for years now, kind of semi-retired, and uh, the temporary help like me were the first people to go. So I haven't worked uh, in 10 months now. Uh, at my age, fortunately, that's not a disaster because I was ready for retirement anyway. But, uh, you know, I've thought, how would I feel about this if I were a, you know, 33-year-old emergency physician with a huge mortgage and kids in private school and huge educational debt? It would be a catastrophe. Mm -hmm. right. um, I think, well, you know, patient volumes across the country dropped by about 40% through the nation's ERs because of coronavirus. I think that will gradually rebound now that, everybody's getting vaccinated and we're going to achieve herd immunity sometime in the next few months. But we have much more severe long-term problems uh, as far as our job market as emergency physicians go. Um, I, I've said for years, in fact, I wrote an article about this for Common Sense back in 2014, called How Many Emergency Physicians Does It Take to Change a Light Bulb? That, uh, <laughs> we have way too many emergency medicine residencies in this country, probably maybe even a third too many. And that's had two ill effects. For one thing, it's degraded the training at some places. Mm. Uh, but for another, emergency physicians are now oversupplied. Uh, we've got more than we need. And even if we could magically make one out of every three emergency medicine residencies go away now, we'd still have the problem for many years to come. Things like this don't change that quickly. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, we have PAs and nurse practitioners who are much cheaper than we are. And to be honest about it, a lot of patients in the emergency department don't need a real emergency physician. They're there for routine primary care and they don't pay their bills. So we're seeing a lot of patients who don't need our services and don't pay enough to support our services. So there is no way to stop PAs and nurse practitioners from caring for those patients because they can do the job, do it more cost-effectively. So we, we have far too many emergency physicians uh, in the country. So I don't think the job opportunities for us are going to rebound when the coronavirus epidemic is over. We have long-term. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. If anything, it highlighted that we have more than we need, probably. Um, okay. Yeah, that was just a thought that was on our minds. We weren't sure how the two interplayed. We thought we'd ask it. But circling back to kind of this, what you has spent much of your career on in terms of advocacy, given that we have now passed this legislation and we have kind of resolved this issue at a very opportune moment during the corona, coronavirus epidemic, how do you see or what do you see as the role for new physicians, even inside and both outside of emergency medicine, to play in terms of further making sure that surprise billings, you know, I guess we would say stays at bay, but other, even other advocacy issues and what would you, how would you guide new grads and say, this is why you should care? Well, I would put it this way. When I graduated from residency, I had no interest at all in advocacy. Uh, all I wanted to do was take care of acutely injured and critically ill patients in the emergency department. And <laughs> truth be told, that's still really all I want to do. Um, I, I don't really enjoy the advocacy so much. In fact, when I first got involved in state issues and watching the state legislature make law, Bismarck was right. You don't want to watch that or sausage being made. It's an ugly <laughs> process. But I came to realize that there were a lot of outside forces that wanted to interfere with my ability to do what I thought was the best thing for my patients based on my own professional judgment. You know, whether it's hospital administrators, government bureaucrats, insurers, you know, tort lawyers. There are a lot of people without medical training who want to either tell me how to do my job or influence how I can do my job. And the only way to stop that, which I think we have an ethical obligation to do, is to get involved in advocacy. So what I would tell new grads is pay attention. Please, just pay attention. Um, wherever you settle, start paying attention to what your state legislature is doing. 
because most medical regulations still come from the state. Get to know your state representative and your state senator. Email them about issues. Offer your opinions. Tell them you're available to help anytime they have a question about medical care and especially emergency medical care. And pay attention to what's happening on the federal level. The other thing I would tell them is whether you choose to join the AMA or not, and I'm not a member, join your state medical association because they almost universally do a good job. They're patient welfare oriented and they will keep you informed of issues. And they need to hear from emergency physicians because even the lobbyists for the state medical societies don't understand how things affect emergency medicine. They don't understand the economics of emergency medicine. I mean, other doctors don't understand us. <laughs> we, yeah. we have a truly unique specialty mm -hmm. uh, in a lot of ways, and no one will, will be a voice for that specialty but us. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I would say pay attention, educate yourself on the issues, and communicate with your legislators. Perfect. Yeah. Three-step plan. And I think that applies even to, to kind of upcoming students, which is important to recognize, first and foremost, that we have a voice and that can be used, and we can be advocates for our patients, even through legislation or advocacy. So, and I think you're right, it's not always fun. It's, <laughs> and it can be messy and confusing, but yeah, thank you for sharing. I think there's some really good tips. And then as per um, the fight, the ongoing fight, so to say, in advocacy with physicians, do you feel like physicians have established that seat at the table on this issue? Oh yeah, uh, physicians, uh, as much as we may uh, moan and groan about uh, a lot of things and how we're regarded by society and ingratitude and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We're still widely respected. And mm -hmm. as long as uh, you're talking to a legislator or a regulator about an issue based on what's best for the patient, they will listen. Mm -hmm. Now, you better have a good argument to back up whatever <laughs> you think is the right thing. Yeah. yeah. You know, like my argument on uh, surprise bills and balanced billing was always, look, we don't want to balance bill the patient. You can you can eliminate that now and we'll support you completely. We just don't want you to cap what we can bill insurers because our livelihood depends on that. And here's the critical part. The medical safety net depends on that. You cap that and hospitals are going to go out of business. Emergency physician groups will disappear. The medical safety net unravels and your constituents won't be able to find emergency care when they need it. Now, do you want to explain that to them when it happens? So you've got to make an argument based on patient welfare, not I want to make more money because they yeah. couldn't care less about that. Yeah. And I mean, just in that and also what you said before, there's so many things I want to ask. So I'll try to keep it organized. Um, one thing you had mentioned with the new bill is um, how they have used vague wording and how the what I understand, if I understood correctly, that the fight continues to advocate to really pin down the wording of what it means in this new bill. One question I had is, um, how do you see the way that the bill stands now affecting kind of the future course for, let's say, new physicians? Do you think that it's going to be more difficult or do you think that there's some part of this bill that kind of empowers them? Well, um, I would say that remains to be seen because this bill instructs the Secretary of Health and Human Services to write rules for what they call an independent dispute resolu resolution program. And that's mm -hmm. what this all boils down to. Um, to explain that, let me tell you what the ideal bill would have been from the insurance industry's point of view, mm -hmm. what the ideal would have been from emergency physicians' point of view, and then what we've actually got. Okay. What the insurance industry wanted was a bill that said what physicians and hospitals can bill insurers is capped at the 50th percentile of the in-network rate because mm -hmm. that accomplishes two things. It means insurers don't care if we stay out of network or not because we can't bill them what's known as the usual and customary fee. And it also gives them an incentive to drive down their in-network rate to lower that 50th percentile. So it puts insurers in complete control of what they pay for emergency medical care, care that we are not only required by law to give, but that we have already rendered to their clients, our patients, mm -hmm. by the time we bill. If we take care of the patient first and bill later, and we hope the insurer pays it. Uh, and of course, insurers know that, and they know that we're legally obligated to take care of everyone. Mm -hmm. so 
they had out-of-network bills capped at the 50th percentile of the in-network rate. In practical terms, it means they get to set rates wherever they want. They can pay every emergency physician in or out-of-network, whatever they want. It would wow. be a disaster. Yeah. The ideal bill from our point of view uh, would have said something like, uh, we can't bill the insurer for more than the 80th percentile, assuming we're out-of-network, that we can't bill the insurer at more than the 80th percentile of um, a rate determined by a database they don't control, like the Fair Health database. Because years ago, the insurance industry got caught falsifying the data in their charge and payment database to make it look like doctors were getting paid. They falsified data in their database so that they could pay doctors less than we were legally owed. Wow. And the uh, Attorney General of New York, along with some other state attorneys general, sued them over this. And part of the settlement was that they had to fund the establishment of a database that they no longer controlled on chart costs and charges and payments. And that's mm -hmm. known as Fair Health. Mm -hmm. And some of the states that passed laws regulating surprise billing said out-of-network doctors can't charge more than the 80th percentile of the Fair Health database. That's a high enough rate to give insurers some incentive to lure us into network with fair terms. So mm -hmm. that's what we were lobbying for. What we actually got was a bill that says the uh, mediator or the arbiter in the dispute resolution process can consider the 50th percentile of the in-network rate, but it's not set as a benchmark. He can also consider uh, a lot of other market forces that are listed in the bill that I won't mm -hmm. go into one by one. Um, and it prohibits the arbiter from considering the Medicare rate and the Medicaid rate, which we did not want to be in the consideration because those rates are so low. And of course, the insurance industry wanted those rates to be considered. Mm -hmm. So there are things in the bill that insurance companies hate, and there are things in the bill that we don't like. So in the world of politics, that means it's probably a pretty good bill. <laughs> well said. That but, is a but now, good the Secretary of Health and Human Services has to come up with specific rules for this dispute resolution process. So now we've got to sit down with regulators instead of legislators and uh, try to ensure that they come up with a, a process that process that's fair to all parties. Mm -hmm. So now this is going to work out in the long run, whether or not it's going to defund the nation's medical safety net and be a disaster uh, or not remains to be seen. And part of that depends on how active doctors are uh, in the rest of the process. Absolutely. And would it be then fair to say that what is left to do is kind of create guidelines that are specific and find the correct mediator as a third party to take the interests of both sides into account when there is a dispute? Did I understand that correctly? This IDR process yes. that has yet to be decided? Correct. The bill lays out certain principles for the dispute resolution process. Uh, but the specific rules have yet to be written. And we're going to start working with HHS and other federal agencies on that as soon as the new Biden appointees are in office. And I think this is maybe a good point to ask, um, other than not maybe having fair terms to lure doctors, as you said, into an, becoming an in-network provider. Are there other reasons that um, doctors maybe want to stay out of network? Well, uh, the, I guess the short answer to that, in my opinion, is not legitimate reasons, no. Most of us, especially those of us who are in physician-owned, independent, democratic groups, we want to be in network uh, because it's easier to get paid that way. It's more predictable. It lowers our overhead. We don't have to chase people for bills. It, it's a much smoother process. It keeps our patients happy. It keeps the hospital administrator happy. Uh, there are a lot of pressures to get us in the network. Mm -hmm. The only reason we wouldn't be in network is if the insurer offers us uh, or demands discounts so severe that we cannot financially survive. Mm -hmm. And I've seen insurance companies do that. Uh, they offer a contract that's just horrible, that it's not tenable, mm -hmm. and say, well, we're not negotiating because we don't care if you stay out of network. Take it or leave it. Mm -hmm. In fact, when my private group did this a few years ago, uh, we were forced to stay out of network. Patients would call to complain about their surprise out-of-pocket bill, and we would waive the entire bill. Mm -hmm. We would say, we, we want nothing from you out-of-pocket. 
the only reason you got this bill is because your insurer will not offer us fair contract terms to get us in the network. And then our patients went back to their employers and complained, who then put pressure on the insurers. And after six months of that, they negotiated in good faith and we got into network. Uh, however, there is one group uh, in emergency medicine that does tend to stay out of network as standard operating procedure purely for greed because it allows them to bill much higher rates. Mm -hmm. uh, and those are the staffing corporations, the contract management groups. Mm -hmm. They have developed a nasty reputation for staying out of network as a business practice and not only price gouging insurers, but going after patients. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they have uh, damaged our specialty horribly by doing that. They've really damaged our reputation. And I guess the CMG that has the worst reputation for that, from what I've heard, is MCARE, which is now known as Envision. So some of mm -hmm. these big staffing corporations have stayed out of network as a business practice, and it's damaged all of us. Yeah, yeah. No, and I mean, we talk so much about the trickle down to the, to the patients, and... Uh, I think one question that has been burning for me to ask is, have you gotten patients asking you questions about this at point of care? And if so, what do you tell them? No, I've never had a patient ask me about his, whether or not he's gonna get a balance bill or a surprise bill, or if I'm in his insurance network, never. Okay, uh, yeah. Okay. Now that you ask, how much does this cost? Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. And pricing in healthcare is so, obtuse that uh, I usually have to tell them, you know, I have no idea because mm -hmm. it depends on what kind of discounts your insurer has worked out with the hospital. Not only do I not know, I can't even found, find out because it depends on your insurance network. Understood. Right? Yeah. And I, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. It's even worse than tuition pricing in college because, you know, an elite Ivy League institution may have a, uh, a tuition set at, you know, Fifty-five or $60,000 a year, but nobody pays that because everybody gets financial aid. Got it. It makes it impossible to compare entities across the industry for cost effectiveness. It's one of the biggest problems in American healthcare, in my opinion. Yeah. And I, I mean, I've heard that question as well, kind of how much does it cost or when given two options, which is more affordable. And so we know it's important to patients. So there's no question about that. And, and yeah, a lot of, uh, I think, new providers or even existing providers or physicians, I should say, specifically may not know how to address that question because a lot of it is negotiated after the fact. So, yeah. What, what I tell patients when they ask me, how much does this cost after I explain why I can't answer that, I tell them, however, I'm happy to talk to you about what tests we can skip safely, which would be nice, but optional and which are critical to your safety. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'll admit uh, or I'll omit the stuff that's not critical to your safety if you want to go that way. And mm -hmm. I routinely use cheap drugs anyway. I always prescribe generics. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I tell patients you pay for convenience. So it's going to be cheaper to take two drugs in two pills than it will be to take two drugs combined into one pill and, and things like that. So that sounds like... Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So... You know, if, if it's a combined ACE inhibitor and calcium channel blocker in one capsule, that's going to be more expensive than taking an ACE inhibitor and a calcium channel blocker in two pills. So, so I, I talk to patients about, you know, there are ways we can try to keep your costs low, and I'm happy to do that stuff. But I can't tell you how much a BMP costs in your insurance network at my hospital. It's so complicated, and I think that's a really great way of partnering with the patient and saying, you know, let's figure this out as best we can together, even when I don't have the answers, because you're still staying honest, you're maintaining their trust. I think that's, that's great. And then um, the last question before I hand it back over to Miriam is uh, basically about training. How maybe would you suggest whether practical or in an ideal world, either way, would you like to see the topic of surprise billing or uh, the legislation that impacts that brought into the education and training? of upcoming students, new physicians, things like that? Well, the medical curriculum is so crowded mm -hmm. that there's not much room to push more stuff into it. Yeah. Um, I, I think especially in residency, emergency medicine residents should at least hear about advocacy and some of these issues 
preferably from one of their attendings who's already involved in it. Uh, and if not, then they should invite someone in once a year to give a talk on how important this is, not just to our livelihoods, but to the welfare of our patients. Uh, and that's why I think we have an ethical obligation to be involved in policy because it affects the health and welfare of our patients. Yeah, I just a follow up question. I really appreciate you kind of bringing up the how you've been what you have been asked before as patients will say, you know, how much is this going to cost me? And you're right, that's an absolutely almost impossible question to answer. But I, I think a good point to bring up to anybody who's training right now is kind of to have that therapeutic alliance with your patient just to say, look, this is what we can safely forego. And this is what we should probably, you know, plan on doing. And just don't think about the cost at this point and just see what happens, you know, unfortunately, but we're there to treat them ultimately. But, and you may have kind of touched. I also suggest that you don't wait for your patient to bring it up. If you're at the end of the encounter and you're discharging a patient and you're going to start new meds and write prescriptions, ask them, um, Mm -hmm. is paying for your prescriptions an issue for you or do you have good insurance? Because if it's not an issue, I can write prescriptions that are more convenient. Uh, if it is an issue, I can write prescriptions that are less expensive. Sure. And, what, you know, to touch on that, too, actually, what I'm learning is I'm prescribing, uh, e-prescribing in the hospital when I discharge a patient. I'm seeing that I'm paying more attention to there's a, like an umbrella. We use Epic personally, but I'm, you could see an umbrella or an X if it's going to be covered in their insurance. And I'm learning to pay more attention to that because they'll tell me my preferred pharmacy is, you know, X on here's my cross streets. And I I'm learning to pay attention because I have gotten phone calls with from a patient saying, you know, it's, hey, that's not covered. And now I'm learning to be a little bit more creative. And I, I think a good point that you touched on too is if we can, knowing that a, a, a non-combo pill is going to be cheaper, make that your MO. I mean, I think that that's a very good learning point for myself currently and something I'll probably start paying a little bit more attention to. In my personal experience, the issue where this comes up most acutely is the treatment of asthma and COPD because inhalers are so outrageously expensive. And I ask patients, do you have a home nebulizer machine? Because the solution for that's a lot cheaper than the handheld inhalers. Yeah, that's a great point. Or, you know, when a pharmacist calls and says this inhaler is not covered by the insurance, I just ask the pharmacist, which similar inhaler is and give them that, you know. Yeah, exactly. That's a great point. Um, I do know that some of the more expensive ones, for example, like QVAR and things like that are going to be the, the more expensive versions as well. Something that, that I'm just thinking about, you know, we've touched on now, even though we have legislation in place, what part of or what realm of advocacy, how that should they get involved? And you said, you know, get to know your state legislatures, go to, I've been to many advocacy days at a Capitol building, at, you know, as a data lobby for medicine and, and just touch on things that are going to be hitting the senator's desks. But I also kind of want to know a little bit about where do you advise just the layperson to go to learn more about topics in medicine that are kind of being debated and are being talked about and what are the hot medicine topics, but just for a general public person to, to say, hey, I want to know more about this issue or, hey, I got a surprise bill. Why? What can I do about this? And where, where would you advise that they can learn more? Well, um, some of the resources from the State Medical Society are available to the lay public. So, for instance, in my state, if uh, a lay person wants to learn about some medical policy issues, they can go to the Tennessee Medical Association website and read the material there. But in general, uh, I think the best thing for a, a full-fledged citizen who wants to be politically involved in his country to do is go to the state legislature's website. Every state legislature has a website. And what I do, and not that I'm recommending this for everybody because it's time consuming and, and I'm unusually geeky about policy, <laughs> is uh, in fact, it's time for me to do it this year because we're at the end of February and that's the deadline for filing bills in the Tennessee legislature. So what I do is I go to their website and put in, it allows you to search for bills by topic. And I'll put in things like tort reform, physician, medicine, you know, balance billing. And I'll, I'll look at whatever bills pop up and read them. Because a lot of times, as, as useful as the Tennessee Medical Association is, as I mentioned before, they just don't understand emergency medicine. So they've got, so all this needs to be reviewed by a real ER doc 
who can then go to the state medical society and say, look, this may sound benign on its surface, but it's going to crush emergency medicine. Yeah. And a, a good example of that is in my state a couple of years ago, two of our legislators who are physicians proposed a bill saying that all balance billing was prohibited unless you warn the patient in advance you were not in network. Okay. Now that makes sense for something that's elective mm -hmm. or if you're going to see somebody in the office. Mm -hmm. Emergency physicians are prohibited by law from doing that. <laughs> you know, if we tell a patient we're, we're out of network, we've committed an entire violation. Right. Mm -hmm. And even though they were doctors, they didn't understand that. That's interesting. It's very specific to our field, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then just some final thoughts. I think, you know, the basic question came to our minds of, of where do we go now? And, and I think we mean that in terms of, you know, we've got this law into place. What things should we be looking ahead towards? And should we, I mean, I, I'd hate to see emergency physicians now or even anybody really to say, oh, okay, we've got a law for surprise billing. Okay, let's wipe our hands of it. We're done. The issue's over. But I'd venture to guess that that's not the answer, that we should still keep this on our radars because is there a chance that things are kind of going to unravel again and maybe we'll have to keep fighting this issue solely in the years to come? Uh, I can guarantee you we will because like I said, even though we've got a bill passed, you know, it's fairly vague in general and the yeah. specific rulemaking is still uh, to come. So we've sure. got to work on that. And even though there's a federal law, States are still free to write their own laws on balanced billing, even now. Okay. Uh, so you still got to keep an eye on your state legislature and educate your state legislators. Um, she's definitely not over. Is rich and patient, and they will keep hammering on this forever. So uh, physicians have to stay aware and involved. If we let down our guard, we're going to get punched. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's a good way of putting it. Keep it on our radars. We'll still keep thinking about it and talking about it. I didn't even think of that after this new legislation that makes a lot of sense. Do you think that we're kind of going in a step in the right direction with this bill? Yes, this was a major offensive by the insurance industry that has gone on for years and we kept them from getting what they want and we left the door open to a fair process. So it's not quite the victory I hoped for, but I'll take it. <laughs> Well said, well said. That's so interesting. And I think we're kind of wrapping up, but um, I guess the best way to say it is I had kind of some interests that I wanted to integrate just to ask you, and I can always write them if we don't want to include this, but um, do you think that with uh, the discussion that was happening the last few years with major healthcare reform and Obamacare, as well as keeping in mind the topic of like care affordability, do you think that we're headed towards kind of another big healthcare reform wave, if I guess, for lack of a better term? I'm this. not sure if that's going to happen right now, but I think it's inevitable. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is really a separate topic we could talk about in a whole yeah. other if you want to. I know, I know. But, but right now, let me put it this way. Mm -hmm. The United States has not had a free market in healthcare for, gosh, 60 years now. So the people who are critical of American healthcare because it's too free market just don't understand. On the other hand, we don't have a truly socialized system where uh, there is some kind of rational approach to rationing and cost control. So right now, we've got the worst of both worlds. We've got the worst of free enterprise with none of the virtues, and we've got the worst of socialism with none of the virtues. Um, that cannot go on, that's unsustainable. Mm -hmm. So we're gonna have to move in one direction or the other. And historically, it's extremely unlikely that we're gonna move towards more freedom and a freer market. So yeah, I think some kind of single payer system is inevitable. Now, if, if I had my preferences, and I think it would be much better for the country if that was done state by state rather than at the federal level. But again, that's unlikely too, but it, that's possible because that would allow a lot of experimentation and innovation and each state could learn from the others. And states can't print money. Uh, mm -hmm. If it's done at the federal level, there's no real incentive for cost control. The feds will just print more money. And in the end, that will be a horrible disaster for all of us. Mm -hmm. No, I hear you really well said and articulated at the, the level that I think almost anyone can understand. So that's helpful, I think for the audience as well.
Miriam, did you have any other questions or final thoughts before we wrap up? No, I mean, I think this has been a fantastic discussion. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Walker. I, I definitely enjoyed kind of going back and forth on the issue and discussing and picking your brain about some of these questions. I think it there's been a lot that's been discussed that have give, leave us a lot of room to think about and as we move forward on the issue. Well, it was a pleasure to talk to both of you. And if you do ever want to chat about uh, general healthcare economics and single payer versus um, something else, I'll, I'll be happy to talk about those issues too. Oh, I will take you up on that. <laughs> uh, I have a new idea for a new podcast. <laughs> the, the Academy does not have a position on that issue. Um, yeah, and I think that's important to, to state because um, with my experience, I've done the AAEM Advocacy Day before. They're very motivated for physician rights and aligning themselves with any injustices that are done. So this was purely out of the nerd side of me on my own interests to ask that question. Well, um, I also have a, a, a very geeky interest in that and a lot of opinions. <laughs> so, yeah. so if you ever want to talk about it, I'm happy to, but it'll be my personal opinion, not the Academy's position. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that would be great. I'd love to work on something. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for being here and also for giving the two of us, as well as our listeners, some really practical tips for what they can do, as well as the advantages of you know being involved. And that is my daughter that, that would like to say hello. Just like, Hi. <laughs> oh, also, I'm surprised, Billy. How'd you get the door open? <laughs> Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. All right. Let me know if y'all need thank anything. Thank you, Dr. Walker. Else. Okay, thank you. Absolutely. Thanks. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope to talk to you again soon. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about AEM RSA, visit the website at www.aemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways that you can get involved in RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students.